0: host Joshua Lee. And this is Caroline. Damn right. We have an amazing guest with us today, Caroline.
1: Oh, who is it?
0: Well, she she worked as keeper and head keeper at the Columbus Zoo from 1982 till 1996. She worked with Colo, the world's first gorilla born in captivity, was the first field conservation coordinator at the Columbus and Brevard Zoos, still actively promoting the improvement of gorilla husbandry author of Voices from the Ape House, Beth Armstrong. Beth, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for asking me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you here. For starters, Beth, can you explain your first up-close experience with a gorilla and at what point did you know you wanted to work with them so intimately and devotedly as you have your entire career?
1: Well, I think, you know, I... I had started working or volunteering at the Columbus Zoo probably around 1980, and um, that I think I started to get an inkling that I that I wanted to head towards primates um, because of some volunteer work that I that I did, and I was hired in as a seasonal employee one day a week during the summer, like for about a four month period, and because of that, I was started working with um, the Japanese macaques. Um, Otherwise known as snow monkeys And we had a a variety of we had marmosets and spider monkeys And other primates in that particular area It was known as the children's area then But that's where my fascination With uh, the social lives of primates Really took hold and took root And so from that Eventually I think I realized I really was fascinated by gorillas And um, just waited and, and worked towards the possibility of trying to get into that department um, and I think one at one time there was there was a gal that that worked in that department and I remember the job came up and she got the job and and I had this feeling of such disappointment and I didn't even apply for the job but I think that was when it struck me that I didn't just want to work with gorillas But it was almost like a need that I felt like there was something there I was, not even that I knew what I was supposed to be doing, but but that I, in order for me to reach a level of contentment in my life, I needed to work with with gorillas. I don't know where that came from, to be honest with you, but it just became sort of a, a very straight line to wanting to get into that position of finally working with them on a daily basis
0: so i imagine um the first time ever being uh in the enclosure with the gorillas a very intimidating experience what was your first experience like
1: well again we were never in the enclosures we we had a keeper aisle that that went the perimeter of, of uh the gorilla uh, enclosures themselves um my first experience was when um diana frisch who hired me as the as a seasonal, well, I was a—I was considered to be a, a, a gosh, what was it called? That—that it was a permanent part-time. In essence, it was thirty-hour a week, no benefits, pretty bad pay. <laughs> um, but but it was a permanent position throughout the year. And in essence, you were given full-time responsibilities. I was happy to be to get that job because I knew it was a step into eventually getting a full-time position with benefits. But that really wasn't my goal. My goal was just to get in to the ape house to work with gorillas. And anyway, Diana took me down the back aisle to introduce me to each of the gorillas. And my first experience was uh, probably meeting Mac, who was Colo's father, and then um, Cora, Colo's granddaughter in a separate enclosure, and then eventually Colo and Bongo. And um, my experience wasn't great because I didn't behave appropriately. Colo absolutely adored Diana Frisch, the head keeper. And she also adored Bill Cups, who was who was the other keeper, the permanent keeper in that area. Um, but Cola didn't know me. And so, you know, think about a stranger coming into your own home and just sort of waltzing in, and you kind of be taken aback by it. But I was with Diana. Diana was interacting with her um, through the back cage door. And... Polo looked over at me and cough grunted at me. And me not knowing any better, I quietly cough grunted back at her, which is a big no-no. Hmm. I mean, really. <laughs> it's a direct threat. And, and I didn't realize it at the time because I was in the middle of raising some raccoons and some other animals for the, what, what eventually became the Ohio Wildlife Center. And so I did a lot of vocalizations with those animals. Just because it was comforting to them and me, in my naivete, had no idea I had just um, basically insulted Colo. Right. <laughs> and I think that sort of colored our relationship from then on out. I don't think I was ever one of her favorite keepers, for sure. But that was my first. Thing. And then, and then eventually, you know, obviously we we walked down to the next enclo- enclosure and it was Bongo, and he, which was Colo's mate, and he was just incredibly impressive and majestic and really handsome um so that was my that was my first first day my first walk through in the ape house
0: interesting so uh many compare zoos to like an animal jail without trial you know tiger pacing his cage like an inmate in a cell the human-like eyes of a monkey peering through gray bars under lock and key uh, clearly you and your co-workers have a devout passion for animals and a love and bond with them that the average person never has the opportunity to experience. So how do you balance these emotions? And please explain how a zoo can create an environment that provides a quality of lifestyle for its inhabitants.
1: Well, I think that's a good question. I think a lot of people, and, and believe me, don't think that that myself, and I'll just speak for myself, but I'm sure other zookeepers have felt the same way, as well is that it's a bit of a struggle initially, Um, well not even just initially, Um, you know, what am I doing, Um, is this the right thing to do And, and I think what I came to the conclusion was I would rather work inside the system and make changes and be a party to making changes Rather than sitting outside and criticizing, because that's not going to get anybody, and most especially the most important thing, that's not going to do anything for the animals in general. Um, I think if you can work in a system, and we—I was lucky enough to work at a zoo where the keepers were listened to and supported, actively supported in their what were then quite novel and um, um, different ideas from the from the status quo of the way zoos had operated for decades. So. You know, I was fortunate in that that working in that kind of environment, myself and my colleagues, Diana and Charlene and Adele, we could all get together, come up with a, a change of the way we wanted to see these animals housed, and the zoo would actually listen, not just actually listen to us, they'd go, yep, okay, right, let's move on, let's get that done, what do you need? And that was kind of unheard of 30-some years ago, and on some level, maybe still is unusual today, and I think that was just good leadership of listening to the people on the front lines who knew best what was going to work for those particular animals. I think my my goal was how how do we improve the lives of these animals that are now at this moment in captivity and how do we give them a a comfortable life that allows them, and I don't really like the word allow because it it just sounds really kind of patronizing, but what what I'm trying to say is How do we give them what they need to be gorillas? And we back off. And that they get on with their life as a gorilla, being a mom or a dad or an auntie to a new baby in a group or a little brother or a little sister um, um, to a newborn infant. That was our goal. What do we need to do here to change the husbandry that these animals are given some semblance of peace in a captive setting so that they can be themselves? And, and Columbus really was amazing in that they allowed us, when we renovated an old building, to completely shut it down to the public. The public was never again allowed in that building. And that gave those animals a semblance of privacy and control over their lives. So we, I think we, myself and my colleagues, were always thinking, put, put ourselves in their position. What would I need to be comfortable in this setting? And that's what we set out to do. And, and we always took our lead from the gorillas. They always let us know what they needed. And that was just a matter of sitting and observing and their social behaviors and their social hierarchy and how they responded to one another or how they responded to new exhibit space would tell us what we needed to do in order to greater enhance their ability just to be gorillas in a captive setting. I may not have gotten all your questions in there answered, but...
0: No, no, no! you did very well in explaining okay. what I wanted explained, And and uh, you spoke of privacy uh, and that actually led into my next question um, mm-hmm. looking around us we see the ever-evolving surveillance state, you know cameras everywhere, privacy nowhere yet humans have seemingly adapted to constantly being watched and many even seem to prefer it. What is the psychology of animals on display? What effects does it have on their emotions and behaviors?
1: I think it's I think it's. This is just me, but I, I think that it's always important to give them a way out, to give them a choice, and um, I think it it, you know it's a, I mean it's a whole other ball game now in terms of enhancement and enrichment daily enrichment that animals get it. Um, it is different now, you know, worlds away from what it was thirty five years ago. Um, but I do think giving animals choices to me is really important. And, and in my case, because I dealt with gorillas, you know, especially Bongo, because I was, I, I sort of looked to him for um, direction. Truthfully, his life was sort of a a story that that could inform me and also sort of bring me back around to reality. And, and also made me very passionate about making changes. So I think when we shut down that building decades ago, when we built the big outdoor exhibit, um, he was never really forced to be outside so much anymore. I think we just, you know, it was he had paid his dues, he had been on display for, for decades, and enough was enough. And he would, you know, even when he had a kid, and his kid would go outside um, with access back to his dad, um, Bronco didn't always go out and I, I felt like well that was, that's his call it's, if he didn't want to go deal with people that's, that's his business so um, again we were, we were allowed a lot of latitude in how we managed that and what, what we were able to offer to the gorillas on a daily basis that's why the program was so dang good is because again management listened to the frontline people and those were the keepers and and we listened to the gorillas because they would tell us everything that they needed. And then we would go to management and say, okay, well, this is what we think we should do next. And lucky for us, we were always listened to and supported.
0: Right. Um, you explained in one of the chapters of your book, Voices from the Ape House, the j- damaging effects of social media. We are social primates, but Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Zoom... Uh, is a perverted social behavior so far removed from our primate roots? Care to explain what you were expressing in this chapter and why you felt such a statement was important to include?
1: I I'm I feel like that, um, you know, when you just mentioned before that that many humans are now used to being sort of under the eye of cameras all the time. I I don't like it. I don't I don't like the idea of it. I don't like people knowing all my business. Um, I'm fairly, I have to be on things like Facebook because I manage a bunch of conservation pages that I have to disseminate information about conservation work around the world or gorilla stuff. Um, And I also try, if I do something on Facebook myself, personally, I try and make it more positive. You know, I do a lot of photography and I might throw some photos up or or I might, you know, um, tune people into a great article or a great book that I've just read or something like that. But what I see with people, the thing is with primate behavior is we take our cues from one another. We sit across the kitchen table from one another, and we see the heartache of a family member when something has broken them or when someone has hurt their feelings or uh, when they've lost someone that they care about. We can respond to that. It's almost like a physical response of seeing um, another person's eyes tear up because they're, they're sad or most especially if you say something sharp to someone and their, their face falls, literally it's a visual cue where you recognize that you have so deeply hurt that person by your sharp words the problem with so-called social media with Facebook and Twitter and all of that you can say whatever you want And you never have to sit across the kitchen table from that person to see the damaging reaction to your unkind and your cruel words. And I think that is something we need to be very, very, very aware of and very, very cautious about what we say and be very careful about the words. I think, quite honestly, we've just spent the last four years watching how damaging words can be. And, and I would caution people when they're tempted. And I have to do this with myself. If I'm really pissed off about something, I, I want to say something that's going on in the world that's bothering me. But it's negative, and I've got to be careful about how do I is it worth saying? Is it is it will it hurt someone? Or do, is it is it needed to be out there in the world so that people can explore that concept a little bit more? That's a little different than just throwing sharp words out there because you don't like the way what someone said or did or whatever. Um, I, think, I think we're losing uh, a little bit of our innate ability to read body language and facial expressions, and that's all a part of the social network of any primate group, be it, you know, howler monkeys or um, chimpanzees or gorillas or humans. We all have the ability to take our cues from one another through our physicality, and we're losing that. Or at least we don't have the restraint that that, that that can give us of being cautious and careful with hurtful things that we throw out there in the world.
0: Do you have anything to say or any questions on that, Carolyn? <laughs> She's an obsessive scroller on social media.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm with you on that. Don't, don't <laughs> you know. But it's just, it's a matter of, I think there are great benefits. Look, I think it's really important to, for, for people, you know, I think something that's maybe missing in our society is, is the importance of reading. I'm, I'm an absolute book nut. I always have been all my life. I love being curious about the world, and I think things like YouTube and a variety of other sites You know, if you want to learn how to play something on the guitar or piano you can get on there and you can learn it in a day those are all good things and I think we need to push critical thinking through reading I think we need to push curiosity about the world so I think there are real benefits to it I just am very concerned about the fact that there may be a generation or maybe even now going into a second generation of people being raised To think that they can say whatever, whenever, no matter how painful. And they never have to apologize or look that person in the face and say, Oh God, I didn't know that I hurt you that deeply. That that worries me, for sure.
0: Hear that, Caroline? She's a consummate internet troll. (laughs) No, I'm teasing. Um... So, uh, moving on from that, back to the apes. I've seen... Well, actually, first I have a question. Um, are monkeys apes? Because I hear a lot of debate about that. And if monkeys are different from apes, or if monkeys are apes. They,
1: they are different. They're primates, but but there's gorillas, chimps, bonobos, bonobos um, um, orangutans, or apes. There's... Um, so-called lesser apes, which are gibbons, siamangs, and I don't even know that they use the term lesser apes anymore. I think there may be a different term. Um, monkeys are different. Monkeys have tails. Um, um, there, there's just some differences there, but people interchange that all the time. If you're a gorilla keeper, it's probably a point of uh, annoyance <laughs> when you hear people say it. So. Um.
0: I've seen documentaries about monkeys learning the languages of different monkey species and using these various languages for many forms of expression including deception. I've seen another story of a chimp who was introduced to his new zoo and eventually adopted the accent of those chimps of that particular location. You speak at length in your book about gorilla language. You care to walk us through the complexities of that? Well, you
1: know, gorilla language is is, you know, Vocalizations. It gorilla language is body language, facial expressions. Um, um, languages for you know, gorillas can, you know, they laugh. They have a wonderful laugh. Um, they, it's kind of a chortle, a low chuckling sound. Um, they have great vocalizations when they're really pleased about something, like if they're getting something they particularly like to eat, or they're super excited about. Um, They discipline one another with short cough runs. You know, that's all an adult really has to do to a rambunctious youngster that's running around that's getting a little bit out of hand. Um, There, yeah, there's there's just wonderful sort of greeting vocalizations, which is just sort of a low rumble um, that they do to one another. And it's also sort of a... um, yeah, things are going good, how are you? I'm over here. Um, you know, there's an alarm call. That's a kind of a rare thing to hear, uh, but it's, it's, uh, when a male does it, it's really sharp. Um, it doesn't happen often, at least in my experience in captivity. But you definitely know that there's, there's something to be worried about. Um, you know, there's screaming when they're getting, if they're getting into a fight with another uh, member. Remember, I mean, it's, it's like any, any group of primates, everybody has, has language through through um, vocaliz- a variety of, of vocalizations. And again, for us as a keeper, it's, it's just a matter of sitting back and watching all of those things interchange and, you know, come into play in terms of, you know, the body language that's happening along with that particular vocalization that, that's happening. And that's a part of the, the great thing about being a primate keeper, whether or not it's for monkeys or whether or not it's for uh, a group of, of gorillas, is it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And, and you have to put the pieces together to try and figure out what exactly is happening in this group. Something feels different. Is someone making a power play? Is there a female that? trying to move up the ranks, which, what? what is she doing, or um, is someone not feeling well, is there something physically wrong with one of these gorillas, because um, they're acting different from, you know, it's very subtle, but something doesn't feel right. So every day, that was a large portion of our work after doing the cleaning and the feeding and, you know, restocking of everything, was to just sit back and take the time and watch gorillas because that is the clue to what's going on within a troop. And that will tell you as well what what is needed um, next. I mean, we we did so many different introductions of babies back to adults that would be the adoptive mothers um, that you had to spend a lot of time doing observations because you wanted to do it safely. You had to make sure the timing was right. You had to make sure that the female was exhibiting um, signs of wanting the baby. Um, and we never, it was really important to never try and force anything on the gorillas. If, you know, if a, a female that had been an adoptive mother three times before all of a sudden on the fourth baby decided, yeah, I'm not really interested, you would know that. She will let you know that, and so you should never force that, and then you find another female that's displaying an obvious interest in the baby. So so the daily observations of what was going on within their troop was, that was really essential to any of the husbandry decisions
0: that we made you explore multiple uh, examples in your book of gorilla humor how they intentionally make humans laugh and even seem to find themselves funny at times <laughs> um, are there gorilla comedians do they make one another laugh does <laughs> do they well i all mean, find yeah i mean i mean funny? they well, they you know i mean there's
1: nothing quite like Walking into the ape house, and you hear that chortling down the back aisle, and you know that there's a couple of gorillas just going at it, tickling one another, and they're laughing so hard they can't even catch their breath. Hmm. Um, That's, you know, do they make each other laugh by looking at each other? I don't, I don't, I can't really say that, but do they tickle one another and goof around so that they're laughing together? You bet. Yeah. And that's adult to adult, adult to juvenile, um, mothers and infants, you know, tickling babies. Um, yeah, that was some of the best stuff, It's just watching play sessions between um, between the gorillas.
0: Yeah, I saw, I saw something about uh, where they discovered that rats actually make a, a laughing sound when they're tickled. And that was the most disturbing yeah. thing I've ever seen. <laughs>
1: Really no, I, I was joking when I, I, I mean, said disturbing not, but it's... I'm
0: not surprised
1: by it. And I and I you know, I think part of the reason why I wanted to write this book was I wanted people to care about these animals. I wanted um, you know, people that work with gorillas, they get it. We knew my colleagues and I throughout the world, there aren't that many of us that work directly with gorillas. And we always we got it because we knew how darn lucky we were. And we felt so privileged to be in the presence of these animals, and I think I I wanted to write that book because I wanted the larger public to understand that these these animals and these particular individuals, but gorillas as a species, needed to be appreciated for the fact that they just are, not in relation to us, not in anything that, um, not yeah, not in any kind of relation to us, but just simply... All on their own, they're fascinating, and and that's good enough, and and that's that's how we should probably we should be looking at all species. That there's an you know there's a fascination with animal behavior, and it's interesting to watch wildlife, whether or not it's coyotes or or you know if you're out in Yellowstone and you see the wolf pack or you see an individual bear out out in Montana or something, it's it's fascinating. Or birds. I mean, just watching the birds in my backyard. Or or there's a, you know, there's a group of, I'm convinced they're, they're nest mates, they're sibs, and there's three if not four of them of squirrels in my backyard and they crack me up because they're so busy just goofing around with each other every day. So I, I would, I hope that this book opens people's eyes to the fact that we are so lucky on this planet to have, the number of species that we have and the beauty that they represent and the complexity that it gives to our lives that I, I hope that more and more people are out walking and looking at nature and, and appreciate, appreciating the fact that we live on this, what I consider to be a miracle of a planet. And, you know, my way of telling that story was through my experiences with gorillas because I, I mean, you know, I, I simply loved, working with them and I felt so lucky every time I walked in every day.
0: Um, you said in the book that uh, gorillas sometimes sing while eating. Is singing our human yeah. interpretation or do you believe they actually sing musically and what does that sound like?
1: I Well I, it depends on what which gorilla it is and I know Tony um, you know, that's been sort of labelled as singing more recently because I think people had um, I think it was a wild gorilla study of lowland gorillas that they had was it lowlands or was it mountain gorillas but but a researcher had dubbed it singing, I think. And we you know, those of us who have worked with gorillas in captivity for decades, we we, we knew that. It's just a it's just an excited voice. It's like super Excited and almost like talking to yourself in a in a high pitched voice, up and down, up and down, because you're just so you're so excited about that you're getting this this special treat or a certain piece of food that maybe you don't get all the time, or for some reason that day it just your meal looks really good, so you're just sort of chatting to yourself. Um, yeah, that's that's sort of what what it's been termed, and and not all gorillas do it. But some do it more robustly than others.
0: So there's nothing musical or lyrical about it. So I can't just... Well, it
1: does, I, mean, I mean, it does sound... You know, it's up and down the scales. And, um, and again, Tony always comes to mind because Tony was the one that probably did it more than anybody. And sometimes it would be almost like... A, you know when you get so excited as a little kid and you kind of take this deep breath in... And then when you let it out again, you're, you're kind of making this high-pitched sound. I don't know how to explain it, but but that's what it can sound like sometimes. Just an absolute excitement about the food they're getting.
0: You tell the story of Bongo rolling an orange out to you several times and you rolling it back, yeah. not getting the message he's attempting to relay to you to peel the frickin' orange. Yeah. Um can you describe the sophistication of a gorilla's nonverbal communication skills?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think it's like, I think it's really like us. I mean, you know, he was, he was gently making a point to me. He was, um, saying to me, um, you know, ultimately what that was ended up happening after the, swirling, or swirling, the the orange incident was he kept pushing his orange back out to me. I wasn't sure that he wasn't trying to get me to come a little bit closer to grab me um, because these are sort of back in the old days when there were bars and you had to be super careful about where you were in relation. Well, you always have to be really careful about where you are in relation to the caging. And, um, and I hadn't been in the ape house that long. And I thought perhaps maybe he was setting me up. I just didn't know. And um, he kept pushing the orange back, and I kept putting it back in. You know, kind of tossing it back in from a safe distance. And and I do think he was getting a little frustrated with me because all, what he was trying to say to me was that I, I need you to peel that orange for me, would you? Right. <laughs> and then if he, if he could, can you? section those off for me and just put those little sections along the bar and I can just sort of lean forward and flip them up as I move my head over and um, I didn't get that for you know three tosses out and then when I finally got it it was really um, probably one of the best compliments I've ever had in my life which was he was in essence saying to me okay you're alright I can trust you mm-hmm. you know you're alright just do this little thing for me. It was it was like a bridge, um, and I don't think he really did it that often after that. I don't I don't remember him. I think it, he was making a point of acceptance to me.
0: Some sort of a test.
1: Well, a test of, or just saying, in essence, okay, Beth, you've been here for six weeks. You, you know, I've thrown every manner of projectile at you, and you're, you're still acting appropriately, and you're not aggressive towards me, and you're subservient to me, and you don't look me in the eye, um, and you're calm, I think you're okay in my book. I mean, that's that's how I read it.
0: So like an olive just, branch.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because again, I don't think he really asked me to do that a whole lot over the years. I think that was his way of saying, okay, we're we're crossing a bridge now. You're okay in my book.
0: The story of Kolo and the toy keys is one of the most brilliant tales of bartering I've ever heard. Uh, can, yeah. you, can you recap this story for us and provide any other similar examples of ape genius?
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, that's another funny thing. I mean, you know, those who worked with girls in captivity, we knew for um, years, decades, that, that they used tools. And it was always, you know, for, you know, back in the 80s and even into the 90s that it was always thought, well, you know, chimpanzees are the only ones use tool, They use tools, make and use tools other than humans, and, and that's not really the case. And, and eventually, a lowland gorilla study in, in northern Congo um, uh, published a paper saying that, that gorillas use tools. Well, it was no surprise to us um, because we had seen gorillas do it. And in essence, what happened in this case was We had an infant gorilla in the nursery, and we were bringing the baby down to the ape house every day so that the baby could get used to seeing and smelling gorillas every day because eventually the baby was going to get back in with gorillas as soon as possible. So that was just a part of our process. And the nursery keeper um, was, was in between the building and the outdoor, the big cage structure. And she was sitting on a blanket, and she had a bunch of stuff for the baby to play with, and had to run inside to heat up the bottle, I think. And Colo, who was the consummate uh, tool user, went and found a branch in her, her outdoor enclosure and and um, used it as like a fishing tool to get this little ring of, remember those old plastic keys that you'd have on a ring for babies? Right. And they were rel- relatively large, uh, but they would clatter around and keep a baby's attention. Anyway, she she looped that loop of the key ring and brought it in to the cage. And when Barb came back out, who was one of our nursery keepers, she realized, uh uh-oh, she's got the keys. And so she went and got um, Charlene Gendry, who is my colleague in the 8th house. And Charlene came out, they looked at the situation, and then Charlene went in and got... I think she ended up eventually getting pieces of pineapple, which was a big deal treat. And Colo, in her... infinite infinite wisdom realized, okay, I've got five keys on this one little plastic loop. If I break each of these keys in half, I get a piece for every plastic piece, a piece of pineapple for every piece I hand back to Charlene. So did that surprise me that she did that? No, she was brilliant. Um, And she was able to barter in such a way that she got more pineapple than, than she would have would have gotten if she had just left the keys intact or had left a whole loop of keys intact and just handed it back. Um, but we had seen, we see we would see other gorillas using and shaping, you know, maybe a stick would be too long or it didn't have a hook in it. I, I remember seeing Sunshine, a male gorilla, um, take a branch and sort of bend it so it had a little bit of a hook towards the end. And he used that to, to underneath on the floor, to go into another cage and and sort of hook a piece of food that was that was in a, another gorilla's cage and pull it back under for himself, so that wasn't unusual. The tool used for gorillas.
0: Right. The reason I would have found it surprising is because I would never have thought to do that with the keys myself.
1: <coughs> well, I would have just got the one piece of fruit. <laughs> yeah. No, she was incredibly intelligent.
0: Um, You make the statement, and I quote, The gorillas watch us, study our movements, sometimes wait for vulnerabilities, and at times solicit interactions. They are discerning when it comes to inexperience, and they can spot a bullshitter miles away. This seems to be a skill most humans lack in every time period of mankind, uh, spotting a bullshitter, even when directly in our face, let alone from miles away. Please expound on this statement and how exactly... Um, are they so astute at recognizing such potential threats of deception?
1: Well, I, you know, think about it. I mean, in a in a world where you don't have spoken language like we have, and you and I are talking right now, and we can express very intricate ideas, and you can ask questions, and um, and we can fine tune where we're going with that. Um, in a in a non-human primate world, you're you're Dealing with a lot of body language—that's that's crucial. Body language and facial expressions. How you comport yourself is crucial. And but I but I might disagree with you a little bit. I think I think you know if someone were to come into your house, say for a party or something, and they were loud and obnoxious, um, not respectful of the, the things in your house, or overbearing, you, you would you would spot that you would, you know, they wouldn't even really have to say anything, but more the way they carried themselves would, would be a, a clue that, um, this is a person that maybe you don't really want to be hanging around with. Right. Um, I think gorillas just, you know, they, you know, if somebody were to, to kind of, you know, sometimes we would have to, we would do tours of the ape house and do behind the scenes tours, um, with people and, and, um, and if there, were, was, there was somebody in there who was not respectful, they just knew it. Now, they could either just ignore them or you know, just you know, do some chest beating and stuff. But you know, if, if we felt that the, that the person that we were towing through the a house was not respectful, we just got them out of there as soon as possible. And that's just, again, a, an aggressive way of carrying yourself into a room. Um, that comes across. You know they watch, and and that's what I was trying to make the point about the social media. When you when you say a lot of things over uh, a system that that doesn't mirror what's happening in your body language, in your facial expression while you're saying it or writing it, um, things can get misconstrued or they can mis- be misinterpreted. It's that combination of tone. Uh, verbiage, in our case spoken words, um, the way you comport yourself, the way you enter a room, the way you sit next to someone, all of that is all a vital part of being a primate, of being able to read their signal.
0: Now, surgical masks are being worn in every area of public life these days. You spoke briefly on mask protocols and your rejection and wearing them around the gorillas. Do you care to explain the psychology of facial recognition in animals, particularly primates, and the negative effects of covering your face as a caretaker?
1: Well, I think you know the truth of the matter is I don't think it'll ever, and 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 understandably so at this point, I don't think it'll ever go back to not wearing masks because of the pandemic, and um, and and again, rightfully so. I mean, we did. If you were sick, you didn't come in the ape house or if you had to be there, you wore a mask and gloves, um, but preferably you simply didn't get around gorillas. So I think with with the pandemic and, you know, potential, the variants, and um, I don't think it'll ever go back to not wearing masks. I took issue with it when it became the norm, when it wasn't necessary. Now it is necessary. So, I do think that there is still a disadvantage. I, I think I, I always wanted them to be able to see my face, just like we saw. We could always see their faces. But I don't know how to get around that one now with with what's going on in the world now. And I would venture a guess that this pandemic is not uh, the last one we're going to see. So, um, I,
0: I believe... Uh... No matter uh, what anybody's views of the pandemic are, we have to maintain some level of humanity. And many of our hospitals, nursing homes, and clinics uh, throughout this have seemed to lose sight of quality of life and of humanity and treatment, denying family visitation, prohibiting fathers from witnessing the birth of their own child. I viewed this comparison, you know, personally when reading about uh, Bridget giving birth to twins, them being taken away, Oscar, the father, watching in hopeless horror the frustration and powerlessness he must have felt. Can you tell us the impact this had on you, how it encouraged you and your coworkers to make a change and how we might reflect those changes into our own human systems?
1: Well, I, I have to say that I, I don't disagree with people not being in hospitals. I mean, this, is, this pandemic is not something to mess with. And um, I think because of having worked in zoos and being somewhat familiar with zoonotic diseases, diseases that can go back and forth between species um, and always being a very um, curious and interested reader in viruses and if you've never read Lori Garrett's book The Coming Plague which she wrote 25 years ago it's brilliant um, so I have always had a fascination with, with uh, viruses and pandemics and, and in the sense of there's a, there's a very strong correlation between what we do as humans and why pandemics occur. And and so I am hoping that there will be a greater lesson for, for humanity to understand that it is our behavior of, of the way we deal with, with the natural world that brings these things about. So I, I think we need to, you know, look at that on a much deeper level and maybe, you know, this horrible time is a time that humans can reflect on how we comport ourselves throughout the natural world and and what our behavior has done to the natural world and compromised it, and therefore compromised ourselves. So I don't really disagree with people not being there for their child's birth. I know that a lot of people will push back on that. Or I I think it's horrible. I mean, emotionally, I get all that. But I also get that this, this virus does not care. And and I, I don't think in this country that we have taken it nearly, um, you know, even remotely as seriously as it needed to be taken. Um, how that goes back to how that affected me when we watched, you know, Bonga or, you know, the, the babies being born. That was that was a real push for all of us, for me in particular, but not just me in particular. My fellow keepers that we we were working in a system where those things were the norm um, across the zoo world of um, uh, a lot of animals being labeled, they're not good fathers, they're not good mothers. Now again, we're talking about the early 1980s here. Um, But we as keepers um, understood that that wasn't the case. We knew that gorillas were perfectly capable and were when given the opportunity and the time and the space and the privacy were brilliant parents and that we're much better parents than humans could, could be to a gorilla. So um, I think seeing those things and witnessing sort of the, the old school of doing uh, zoo husbandry with gorillas, you know, it wasn't, again, not just at Columbus, it was across the board. But I think, again, by being in the system, you saw what you didn't like and what you knew needed to change. And we were just so lucky to to be in a place that allowed for all the changes to come about. So, and and not only did we want to make a difference for the animals within the care, our, our the gorillas at, at the Columbus Zoo, but we hope that if we create this model of promoting mother and father rearing and and giving them the space and the time to be gorillas um, by by supporting um, the concept of. Surrogating babies back into gorilla groups as soon as possible, so that they would be raised by gorillas. That we could break that cycle of moms not raising babies, and and all of a sudden you've got more baby gorillas in the nursery, and then you've got that generation not raising babies again. So we had big picture models in mind while doing it on the, the very local level of dealing. Most most importantly for us to make a difference in the lives of the animals at, at Columbus. We wanted gorillas to mirror as closely the lives they would have in, in the wild in a captive setting, which meant that we needed to have babies and juveniles in groups. We needed the adults to be doing what they were more than capable of always doing, which was good parenting, disciplining juveniles, you know, rambunctious juveniles in relation to, to uh Vulnerable infants and that juveniles needed to learn as they were growing up in a group in the group that you need to be careful around babies. you're not allowed to get that rough with a baby. and that's that's all important that that was all gorilla taught. So yeah, I think those early days where we're witnessing what was the old zoo model wasn't didn't fit right with us, and that's why we made all the, the big changes that we made. And i do think those models went out into the world i think it went beyond the the boundaries of the columbus
0: zoo um you worked with uh binti jua i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly uh yeah yep the female gorilla made famous as the protector of the boy who fell into the gorilla enclosure at brookfield zoo in 1996. you stated that the news sensationalized this story Please explain yeah. how they misinterpreted this act of empathy towards a child, the compassion of primates, and what are the dynamics of a gorilla family—mother, father, child.
1: Yeah, um, I I think again it was it was you know oh I think it was labeling and and I had really pushed back on 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 my in my own personal journey of working with gorillas of, of really pushing back on animals being labeled and I think. You know, the news media got in touch of, of the kid falling in the moat with Binti Jua and she, you know, sort of cradling the kid and then taking the kid over to the door, which is the door that she would have gone into, you know, to get off of public display. I don't think that was unusual. I think gorillas have this incredible um, uh, empathy for gentleness, for a level of kindness, for nurturing. I don't, I don't think any of that is unusual. I think the way it's been presented to the media is, oh, my gosh, can you believe it? This gorilla was gentle with this young kid. I don't think that's unusual. And I think, you know, that's what we saw and was affirmed with every single mom and dad and baby and adoptive adoptive mom mom and adoptive dad with baby um, is an incredible level of patience I will say that they are so patient with their kids, um, a gentleness. It is rare that you would see an adult go after a youngster. Um, a, a simple cough grunt uh, <coughs> is enough, usually, for a youngster to get the message. Uh oh, I'm pushing the limit here. They don't. They don't really hit. You don't see that um, as a norm. They're really quite tolerant and kindly I think towards you know youngsters and infants in particular but, but you know they form very very strong friendships with with uh, other troop members and they may not be related um, so moms and dads are great dad you know moms get to call all the shots if mom doesn't want the dad touching the baby then he's not allowed to touch the baby and it's only when she decides that it works for her <laughs> but, and it's always so interesting to watch, of course, this 400-plus-pound male, you know, that's massive, and then this female who's 150 pounds basically look at him and say, uh-uh, I don't think so, buddy. And and he'll listen. And so, you know, there is this real defined uh, respect towards what the roles are within a gorilla troop. And again, you need all the components. You need infants because... That is the job of adults to raise infants. And you need juveniles because they need to learn how to be nurturing through what they see with adults and infants. And and also, juveniles need the adults to discipline them in relation to how they behave within a troop, what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. So, it, I mean, honestly, I can't say that there is anything better. There isn't anything better in this world than just sitting sitting back and watching a, a troop of uh, mixed age gorillas uh, because there's always something going on. There's always somebody busy. The juveniles are running around, the parents are trying to take a nap and you know the male gets up and all of a sudden they decide they need to go to a different location because they're taking their lead from him. Um, maybe a couple of females don't get along and so they do a little cough grunting at each other and then they settle back in. I mean, it's it's utterly fascinating to watch them.
0: You speak of pride in your troublesome ancestors, and of how your own rebellious nature helped you in your efforts of improving the zoo. Rebelliousness takes courage, and courage is a rare trait in humans, but a very necessary trait at times. Are there rebels and guerrilla groups, and do you see any positives that come from their re- rebellious acts?
1: You know, I don't know if I could really uh, say that. I mean, that I would be aware of it. I think, you know, for my part, that that sort of understanding that if, when you, whenever you push back against an established system, whatever that system happens to be, um, it, you have to be – first off, you have to see that there's a problem. Then you have to self-reflect on how do we get here and what do we need to do to get over this? What do we need to do to make the changes? And that's where, again, I go back to you can sit and criticize any situation in this world. But you have to act on making change, and you have to participate in making change. And for me, um, I felt very strongly for myself, that, and I think my colleagues did as well, is that we were the voice for gorillas, that we had to speak up for them in order to see a huge turnaround in the way they were perceived, the way they were uh, given opportunities, and the way they were housed in captivity. Um, that it was, it was a part of our job. It was just a normal responsibility of being able to speak, speak up and speak against what wasn't working and saying, okay, now what do we do? It was never good enough to just say, well, this just isn't working, and I'm really angry about it. That doesn't do anything for anybody. What you have to do is sit down with like-minded people and come up with a concrete plan, and how do we get on with the plan? And what are the practical applications of that plan? And that's what we did almost every day in the ape house when we see things happening. And, and especially when we came to the big shifts and changes in husbandry and building exhibits. Um, but again, I keep rolling back to, we were in this incredibly um, um, privileged position that we worked at a zoo where, where our ideas that were really pushing back on the norms they were listened to and they weren't just listened to we were given the latitude to enact it and that's that was a pretty magical um place place to be in
0: the chapter of bridget's death was a very heart-wrenching read but at the same time very uplifting and in the strengthening of bongo and fosse's relationship please walk us through the grieving process of gorillas how they accept death and how they overcome the struggles of loss.
1: Well, I think, you know, I think what most people don't really understand is that gorillas mourn. And and they not only mourn, they have a very specific vocalization that we call a mourning vocalization. And it is truly one of the most mournful, sad sounds I've ever heard in my life. And Bongo did that after Bridget died, and sat at the back enclosure door after we had taken her body away for, the, for a necropsy. And um, he sat at the back door for days with his son leaning up against him, and just called and called and called to her. And it just, I mean, it just about broke our hearts. Um, and, and that's what I want people to understand about them. They form bonds as strong as we form bonds, and that needs to be respected. And, and they suffer loss and heartache like we do. And, you know, and Foss already had a, huge, a really incredible bond. And, you know, that was sort of made a big deal of too. I think, by the media that, you know, he took over care of his son. For us, it was like, well, of course he did. It's his son. He adores him. Of course he would take care of him. We did have to readjust. I mean, because of the way silverbacks are built, they don't have long hair, you know, a hair coat on their back. So it's not like a baby can get up on, on the back of a male and ride around like he would his mom. Because there's nothing to hold on to, truthfully. Um, but they adjusted and we adjusted with the way we did Fossy's Milk. And, and um, you know, they were the best of pals, those two
0: best friends for sure I'm going to change the tone a little bit here Um, this wasn't in your book so I want people to know that this question is coming way out of left field but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you your opinions on Bigfoot and the possibility of undiscovered apes in North America
1: well I think anything is possible and I wouldn't you know my worry is um, my worry is we, we have so many beautiful, incredible species on this planet that we don't seem to appreciate. We humans um, don't seem to appreciate them, and therefore we don't care for them and protect them. And I worry that if such a creature as that exists, that the idea of people harming them, something like that is what worries me. i harassing. I'm going after. that That's what worries me when I hear about this stuff. I mean, who knows? I don't discount that stuff. And, um, you know, there's new species discovered all the time. So I th- i think my thing is, is I worry more that it would become a, uh, it's, I don't know, you know, like a crazy mob mentality of if they discover, you know, if there is such a creature, I'm sure it just wants to be left alone. Let me just put it like that.
0: Right. And yeah, my, my question on that is, uh, if it doesn't exist, why are everybody seeing it? what is the psychology going on that's harkening back in time to some giant uh, ape species? In our history i don't know just a thought yeah. um i've read articles that make the bold claim that apes may be entering the stone age as they're learning tool usage is there any truth to this can we expect a planet of the Apes apes anytime soon
1: i i'm sorry i didn't hear the beginning of that question
0: oh uh, i've read many articles that make the claim that apes may be entering the stone age as they're learning tool usage is there any no. evidence to this? I mean, truth.
1: I mean, I, I mean, you know, chimpanzees use tools and they make tools and, um, it, yeah. There's, you know, there's a different ways of using tools. I mean, I don't think that has anything to do with Stone Age or anything like that. I, I think, you know, the the cool thing about chimpanzees in the wild is in the early '90s they they really define the fact that there were very individual cultures. Uh, amongst uh, wild chimpanzee uh, populations, that certain certain um, groups of chimps in the Thai forest and the Ivory Coast um, uh, cracked nuts with rocks, and that other other chimps in Uganda used um, sticks or whatever to manipulate um, to use it as fishing tools. So, I think that's fascinating. That that um, any animal figures out, hey, if I If I manipulate this item, I can actually get to a food source.
0: Right, which we see even in uh, Ravens, using uh, the tool usage and solving puzzles. Um, Oh, oh,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: One last question, and uh, you can use this to uh, summarize uh, your message to the folks out there. Um, as we are pushing so many animals to the brink of extinction, d- destroying their habitats, selecting and domesticating, programming animals d- to be dependent upon humans for survival, what is the future for wild animals and how can we maintain a balance between their independence and our will to dominate nature for our own selfish pursuits?
1: Well, I, I have to you know, go back to what I said earlier about this pandemic, is that this pandemic happened for a reason. And, and we are encroaching into wild into wildic areas and you know we are consuming you know wildlife that are in very stressed situations. Um, I think this is a time of, of as awful as this time is. I think it is an opportunity for the human, Species to take a good, long, hard look at ourselves and understand that that we uh, uh, we have never been dominant. Um, Mother nature will will set us straight every every step of the way. I mean, we just saw what happened in Texas. We're seeing what's happening with you know hurricanes and um, you know and coastal communities that have that have you know torn down mangrove swamps. Uh, which are natural barriers for for major storm events. Um, our behavior has created a bit of a mess, and I'm and I'm hoping that perhaps this time, um, that we will start to connect the dots. That we are a part of this world. That we are privileged to be a part of this world. But along with that, we are responsible for being responsible towards other species, and. Um, And that it's not, it's not our place to dominate anything, um, but rather to um, appreciate and protect.
0: I appreciate having you on. Uh, Beth Armstrong, the book is Voices from the Ape House. Uh, Is there anything that you would like to promote? Any causes or anything?
1: Uh. Well, I think, I think what I'd like to say is, is for, for people out there to, to understand if you care about environmental issues or you care about wildlife species, there's any number of things you can do. You can support uh, conservation programs around the world or support one here locally. You can volunteer uh, working with local eco clubs or nature clubs. Um, don't ever forget that one person really can make a difference. And, and I do think that I think if everybody spent just a little bit of time trying to do uh, good work that, that uh, supported the planet, protected the planet, um, that we'd be in much better shape. I, I things, you know, something, something as simple as, you know, just quit using plastic bags, people. It's as simple as that. <laughs> if you go into a grocery store, do not, do not use a plastic bag. You don't have to. Bring your own. And, if you, and, it, and, you know, I know it seems like a little thing, but when you stand in line and you look at all this stuff, plastic, that is going back out into the wider world, um, we, can, we can make a difference if we just make some shifts. And um, I do believe that, you know, um, we're, in, we're living in, in strange times right now, but, but I do believe that perhaps this is an opportunity to rethink what our role is in this world.
0: Well, we sincerely appreciate your time. Um, thank you for the interview. Uh, very interesting stuff. Uh, go buy the book. Uh, Voices from the Thank Eighth you,
1: House. thank you. And and the book is available at, at all the Columbus libraries as well. So yeah. if you don't want to purchase it, it it is at the library. But you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble's in, uh, in the in the uh, uh, stores here in Columbus, or or order it online. But you can get it at the library.
0: Thank you very much good day to you
1: thank you josh
0: bye well caroline um very interesting interview obviously there are some things that we don't uh, see eye to eye on but uh like what well we didn't bring her on to uh argue about masks and uh the state of the pandemic
1: no it looks like she was
0: maybe supporting it maybe well, that's okay. People have yeah, different opinions. Okay. We have a different view, and we'll be sharing those different views throughout our podcast. So we have our voice, and we let her have her voice. But uh, that's we brought her on to speak about gorillas, and it's very fascinating stuff. And very... The fact that they have emotions and they very much relate to how we feel like in terms of like how they feel when somebody
1: dies you remember when you were talking about anyway this is out of topic never mind
0: what was i talking about uh geese how they mourn oh, a lot of animals actually <laughs> that mourn. that was my own personal observation yeah so. canadian geese yeah in the parking lot uh, we used to live where it was just over flooded with canadian geese and uh Somebody hit one, and the geese were gathered around it, seemingly in some sort of—I uh, don't know—it was like a funeral service or something. It is, uh, you know, is mind-blowing to it think was. that even geese have that kind of emotional connection to one another. Um, but yeah, we enjoyed having her on the program, and we are thankful for that. Um,
1: we're looking he- forward to having you guys when we discuss our next podcast. Right?
0: We discuss our next podcast or when we have record our next podcast.
1: Whatever it is. Discuss it. Interview somebody. Whatever it is. <laughs> Whatever
0: the hell it is. All right. Love. Peace. Signing off.
1: Peace. Love y'all. That's
0: not your thing. You see, say-